0: Good morning and welcome to New Books in History. I'm your host Christoph Dinitz, and today I'm speaking with Professor Stephen W. Hackel. He's Professor of History at the University of California at Riverside. Uh, Professor Hackel has written extensively on uh, California history, early modern, I'm sorry, early American history, uh, colonial history, and most recently about the apostle of California, Junípero Serra, the Franciscan missionary. Who established the, the mission system up and down the coast of California. He, he also has a, a book that is a little older uh, from 2005 called Children of the Coyote, Missionaries of St. Francis. So on, on these topics, uh, Stephen Hackle is perhaps the authority uh, in, in, in in the world. And he is also a director or coach, sorry, co-chairman of Early Modern Studies at the Huntington Libraries Institute uh, seminar on Spanish borderlands. Uh, and his uh, current work involves a study of immigration and community formation in California before 1850. So th- thank you, Professor Hackel, for being with us today and speaking about your, your book, Junipero Sera, the founding father of California.
1: Well, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much.
0: So uh, maybe we can start by uh, asking you to tell us uh, a, a little bit about uh, this book. What is its argument and what have you discovered about Junipero if, uh, Serra, if you would like to, you could also tell us about the sources, uh, what what you found at the Huntington Library and I know you've, you've organized uh, some conferences there and uh, uh, any any uh, anything on, along those lines.
1: Well, the book, uh, Junipero Serra, California's Founding Father, was my attempt to try and reinsert Junipero Serra back into history, to sort of place him within his proper historical context. As you weigh as, as you may know, is the most famous Franciscan in California because he was the man who initiated 21 missions in California that became the backbone of the colonial uh, effort by Spain to settle the region. And over the years, he's become increasingly controversial, as the Catholic Church has um, recently concluded an attempt to uh, canonize him. He was canonized in 2015. And that was part of a long struggle over his legacy in which some Catholic supporters believed he was a saint and descendants of some native groups believed he was pretty much the exact opposite and had initiated a a destruction of their culture. So you had this polemical debate around Sarah, and what seemed to me that was really lost was the individual behind it all. And so what I tried to do in the book was go back to his roots in Majorca, an island in the western Mediterranean to see where he was from, to see how his character was formed. And then I think perhaps most important to make the case that by the time he came to California in 1769, he was 56 years old. And he lived a long and consequential life. And that if we just viewed him by those 13 years in California, where he was extremely important, obviously, that we missed much of who he was and wouldn't really fully understand his life in California. So the book begins in Majorca, Um, A very, very fascinating place where he grew up, a place that was an entrepot, a nexus of interactions between Africans and Catholics and Muslims and Jews for centuries uh, before he was born in 1713. I look at his life there, and then I take a a very close look at his uh, years of of work in Mexico – from 1750 to 1769, where he was a missionary, a teacher of missionaries, and an inspirational figure for tens of thousands of people before he finally moved in 1767 to Baja, California, and then to Alta, California in 1769. So I tried to capture the span of his life, uh, the influences upon his um, religious practices and his views toward Native Americans, again with the real hope of trying to get beyond what seemed to me a very narrow, um, restrictive debate and understanding of who he was, to sort of see him in a broader historical context.
0: And, and what did you discover? Well,
1: I discovered, as I said, that he was um, a very interesting person before he came to California, that he had been uh, raised um, pretty much by Franciscans in many ways in a small community of Petra and that he had gone on from there to have a very influential career as a franciscan professor and um missionary essentially on the island of majorca uh, until 1749 so and i think that was a that was an aspect of his history that was largely forgotten and lost and uh, this is because the people who wrote the first biographies of him spent almost no time on his early years and just talked about his california experience so he he grew up in a very, very uh, important region in terms of Catholicism. Most people don't realize it, but Majorca was a center of missionary life in the 18th century. A place where uh, that exported missionaries by the dozens across the 18th century. And Sarah was just one of these men. Uh, he was extremely uh, interesting and important, but he wasn't unique in any way. Uh, when he left the island in 1749,
0: that is really interesting. I. I think maybe because some of his companions who wrote his early biographies had shared his background they did not think it was noteworthy or worthy to uh, worthy of comment but rather they wanted to speak of the new world and the missionary uh, efforts there but what I learned from your book about Mallorca was its astounding poverty and uh, how how um you write about the severity of hunger of disease of disorder of uh, a bit of Spanish empire, uh, at least Aragonese empire in the Mediterranean at the expense of the Majorcans. how what little food they grew, the king took away and gave to his troops. And so we we think about, you know, these um, perhaps in very anachronistic ways of Europeans coming from their elevated uh, universe into this new world and lording it over the, uh, the indigenous peoples. But in fact, it seems like the four horsemen of the apocalypse were galloping around the Mediterranean, uh, which would have been quite formative. For
1: I think it's a deep irony that you're pointing to that you know when Sarah was growing up on the island of Majorca, his native um, Majorcan language was being suppressed, and Castilian was becoming the language of empire. This was something that the Bourbons pushed uh, very heavily uh, in the early 18th century across the island of Majorca. And Sarah and his people really reject that. They try and hold on to their culture. They don't want to be colonized by this external Spanish force. The irony is that when Sarah comes to the New World, that's really the role he plays. He tries to suppress native languages in California, tries to turn these people into subjects of a distant king. um, And it it really is uh, – he's not aware that he is, in a sense – reliving it in, in an inverted way, his own childhood in early adult years of Mallorca. He becomes a very effective agent of empire, even though he and his people resisted this kind of conquest on the island of Mallorca for decades. In fact, Mallorca was the last place essentially put down uh, that, that the Bourbons were able to fully enforce their rule a- across uh, much of Spain.
0: Do you find that to be normal in the 18th century? I, I'm a little more familiar with the 16th century, and it seems to me that Franciscans who first came to Mexico were quite eager to learn native languages and try to use the the indigenous languages as a way to access the the culture here in in order to 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 um, to be uh, uh, proselytizers of of, of the gospel. Do you find that that was still true in the 18th century, or no? It was much more. everything has to be Spanish, Castilian Spanish.
1: Well, there's a big transformation that occurs sort of in the the minds of missionaries and their practice between the 1520s and the 1750s when Sarah comes to New Spain. In those early years, you had a tremendous optimism in in the 16th century that there was a new world that could be conquered, that native peoples um, would essentially throw down their beliefs, give them up once they had heard the gospel. And this is a, a sort of a, a belief that animates the lives of the first two generations or so of Franciscans. Some of them from Majorca, but by the mid-eighteenth century, uh, missionaries, for the most part, realized that, in many ways, that was a naive belief. And there's going to be a lot of work necessary to convert Indian peoples to Catholicism. There's also a, a a real decline, we could say, in the way that missionaries respect and understand Native peoples. Mm. The early ones, as you suggested, were in many ways themselves skilled ethnographers, or we would have called them anthropologists in some ways. They really wanted to master and understand Native belief, not because they respected it or they believed it was true or or valuable, but because they knew that if they wanted to overturn it, they had to understand it. By the mid-18th century, when missionaries are moving into the distant regions of of Northern New Spain, where native peoples don't have monumental architecture. They don't have pyramids. They don't have recognizable cities. They don't have, in the missionaries' eyes, uh, political leaders, religious leaders. They don't have gold and silver and all the items that the Spaniards believed were emblems of an advanced civilization. They look at these people, Sarah included, and they see humans who are just a little bit above animals in their own eyes. They dress... In limited clothing, uh, they have homes that are made out of local brush or wood. And this, to the missionary's eyes, suggests that there's, these people are barely civilized. So consequently, missionaries like Junipero Serra devote almost no time at all to understanding native religious belief, and they dismiss it out of hand as superstition, as incorrect, silly beliefs inherited from their ancestors. So we don't have that rich ethnographic tradition in Sarah's generation of missionaries that we see two centuries earlier. And that's that's really a pity, um, because it meant that Sarah never understood the people he worked with, and it means that today we don't have a full sense of native beliefs that Sarah tried to overturn.
0: That's astounding. In those 16th century antecedents, they uh, often saw uh, a continuation from the polytheism of Classical Greeks to the early modern European monotheism, and then they tried to imagine that dignity uh, in 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 the persons of their new charges, and sort of had the attitude, or so often, not always, that as we were, so these people are; as we are now, they will become. But you say, not so; these are these are barbarians, and they understand what uh, corporal punishment and little else. Or, well, the,
1: they they viewed them as. Um, in the best of all possible worlds, they viewed them as innocents, as people who had sort of lived before the fall. And they didn't see them so much as barbarians, but as people who were rustic, mm. sort of um, unlettered, uncivilized. They didn't see them as devil worshippers, as um, dangerous. They saw them as childlike innocents who simply lived lives of ignorance. Um, and this, you know, this is how Sarah... Um, sees Indian peoples as children, and it's for that reason, and this, course, the Spanish state saw them as children, as wards of the state, essentially. And it's for this reason that Sarah believes, and he's in no way unique in this sense, he believes that corporal punishment, the whipping and flogging of Indian peoples, is essential to their salvation. That if they aren't shown discipline, if they aren't punished for not following the Franciscans' beliefs, that they will simply drift off after they're baptized and live lives of sin and ignorance. So Sarah, while we don't know if he ever actually beat Indians himself, certainly speaks in favor and articulates um, a a plan and a vision in which Indian peoples once baptized won't be be able to leave missions, and if they act in ways repeatedly— that are against the interests of the missions that he founded, that they would be flogged, uh, beaten by other Indian peoples working for the Franciscans, or by soldiers in California.
0: And, and, and I think let me just let me yes. just say
1: one more thing about this. This is, of course, shocking to our sensibilities today, um, but it was entirely consistent with how sort of patriarchal institutions and families worked in the 18th century and earlier. So. Our goal here is not to excuse Sarah as a man of his times but to understand him as a man of his times, and it was considered to be the duty and the responsibility of fathers to punish their children, and Sarah sees Indians as his spiritual children, so in his eyes it was entirely legitimate to whip or spank and hit native peoples, just as it would have been legitimate for his own father to subject him to similar corporal, similar corporal punishment when he was a young boy on the island of Majorca.
0: And that was his own experience. I think you write that his own father loved him with something with a balance of, of severity and, and love, and to do anything else would, would be failing in, in responsibility.
1: We believe so, and we don't have, um, from Sarah's youth, you know, um, a diary of his own child's experiences. His father, to the best of our knowledge, was not was not literate. But what we know from the culture that he came from, there's every reason to believe. And from his later sermons, there's every reason to believe that corporal punishment was a simple fact of life um, in Petra, the community he grew up in on the island of Majorca.
0: Do we have any speculation about what what the early uh, Californian native peoples might have practiced parenting? Or is there no way to know that?
1: Well, I mean, mean, we have um, some information on that. And again, unfortunately here, largely through the eyes of the missionaries themselves. But at various points, um, the Spanish state did send out sort of questionnaires to various colonial outposts. And one of them was in California. And the missionaries were asked a series of questions. One of them being, how do Native peoples treat their own children? And invariably, across all the missionaries, the Franciscans responded that Native peoples, if anything, uh, loved their children too much, Mm. that they indulged them too much. There's no indication that corporal punishment in any way uh, was was a part of Native belief in Spanish California. And in fact, Indians who flee the missions often state that Corporal punishment at the hands of the missionaries was one reason. They found life intolerable in the California missions
0: I think that's very important. Can you tell us about the mechanics of how uh, Missions were set up so from the these, you know, eight Spanish uh, missionaries plus many Mestizo soldiers or or maybe you can describe the 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 party for us coming up out of the south to the mission system that we have today? How did they found it? How did they build it? How did they get the people to come? And then how did they constrain the people from leaving? It seems that we don't often know the, the, the process.
1: The establishment of, of missions in California was a complicated process, but one that had been worked out by Spain and missionaries over centuries. California is pretty much the last region that Spain settles in the new world. So typically what would happen is a a military party would come into California um, of missionaries, composed of missionaries and supporting soldiers who were themselves recruited from sort of the hinterlands of northern New Spain. If there were any Spaniards at all involved in this, it would have been the missionaries themselves and a governor and perhaps his assistant. So it was largely, overwhelmingly a mestizo um, colonial Population that came north, in relatively small numbers, I should say. What they would do is they would find a place that was very convenient in terms of its access to water and to native peoples. And the missionaries would then raise a small primitive hut, elevate a cross, and begin to try and teach native peoples the rudiments of Catholicism. And I should say that we do know very. Clearly, from the diaries of the missionaries who came to California, Sarah included, that for the most part, Indian peoples had no interest in any of this in the first couple years. They looked um, warily at missionaries who established settlements. They saw very little advantage or benefit to associating with them. And what that meant was that in the early years of the missions, almost everybody who was baptized was a very small child, usually a young boy who had been orphaned, who perhaps was in some ways um, not fully integrated into his own home community. What we also know is that in these early years in which the missionaries, supported by several dozen soldiers and settlers, and in association with hundreds, if not, well, certainly hundreds of animals, horses, sheep, cattle, goats, pigs chickens, that, the, that all of these collectively transformed the environment in which Indian peoples lived. And this is extremely important because as Indians come into missions for baptism or as they accept baptism, I believe this is largely in response to environmental degradation of their, of their regions in which subsistence economies no longer functioned. And because the Spaniards introduced diseases that begin to unravel native communities so it's really not for um, it's really not to hear the word of the gospel that missionaries come to mission that indians come to missionaries it's really because they are looking for food and places to reconstitute their fraying lives as they're under assault essentially from this whole environmental transformation in their region
0: and the alternative, the alternative, do we know if you know, say other populations said, "Well, we're moving north, or we're moving east, or we will"? Um, or there was there was no way but this way to. Do.
1: Well, what what we believe is that this process unfolded over twenty or twenty five years in the places where the missionaries established their own presence. That it, there was no sort of massive conversion of native peoples overnight. And that it was a slow but steady unraveling of native villages. We think that for every two Indians who came to a mission, at least one didn't. Uh, So the population slowly but inexorably moves from native villages to Franciscan missions where you have whole new sort of combinations of of people living together. Different villages, often people speaking different languages, coming into the California missions. And I think they largely do so um, in a great misunderstanding. I think the belief was they could go there, um, reestablish their families and communities, and live off the livestock and the agriculture practiced at the missions, or that they practiced at the missions, I should say. But the missionaries have a very um, inflexible belief that once Indians were baptized, They had to live the rest of their lives at the mission under the bell. And this, I think, is something that Indians resist throughout the colonial period. Um, And it's fugitivism or flight from the missions is is a constant theme in all of the missionaries' correspondence. And it seems to have been an indication that the lives that Indians lived at the missions were not really ones they accepted or fully anticipated when they moved there.
0: So they have changed categories from benighted innocence into some kind of rebels or or um,
1: I think that I think that's a good or, point. Yeah, I mean I think that that the missionaries Sarah especially before they set foot in California before they began their endeavors there they did have a fantasy um that native peoples once they heard the gospel would in some ways move quickly, not instantly, but they would move towards Catholicism. And Sarah believed deeply um, in the writings of a Spanish nun, de Jesus of Agreda, who wrote many, many books um, in which she described how she, as a spiritual nun in Spain, had bilocated, meaning that she was in two places at one time, she was in her, in her nunnery um, in Spain, but simultaneously she was preaching, she claimed, um, in the vernacular, the native tongue of Indians throughout the Southwest. And Junipero believes that she's come to California or that she had come to nearby regions and spread the word of the gospel, in a sense laying a foundation for the arrival of men like himself. But I think it's pretty clear that after five, seven, ten years, that Sarah no longer believes that it's going to be an easy road in California. And as you suggested, Indian peoples, when they resist, when they attack missionaries, when they destroy missions, they're seen in a much less uh, idealistic light, of course, by the Spaniards afterwards.
0: So from this, which is a cultural tragedy, or it sounds like, from our 21st century Point of view after self determination and um, and all the all all that well, we have it, today. It's sort, of more,
1: it's sort of more than a cultural tragedy because the clearest legacy of Spanish colonization of California and the establishment of the twenty one missions is the rapid decline of the native population in California. And what we know is that the rates of mortality that Indians suffer in the California Missions are astronomical, that the missions had essentially... um, They were cesspools of European disease, and they were cesspools of just ill health. There was not good water. There was a very limited diet, an adequate diet in terms of calories, but not one that was particularly um, sustaining in any way beyond just sort of a number of calories consumed by Indian peoples. And Indians every year in the California Missions the population falls by 5 or 10%. And the net result is that missionaries begin to recruit Indians from greater and greater distances from their own missions. And this, for 20 or 30 years, masks the sort of cratering of the Native populations most adjacent to missions. And by the 1820s, 1830s, California becomes um, a place that is sort of a widowed land in which you have far few Native peoples than two generations earlier.
0: Uh, and this is also a, um, a shortened experiment because unlike Mexico, where we can see the development of a hybrid culture over centuries, here very sh- within one generation, um, Spain turns into an independent Mexican Republic, followed by the United States uh, acquisition of California after the war in 1846. Um, so we don't really know if anything would have developed on its own because suddenly there's political uh, reversal i think yeah I think what's interesting is that
1: Spain has about fifty years in California from seventeen sixty nine to eighteen twenty one and I think you're, you're quite right that in in central mexico in New Spain, you have you know two and a half years in which the colonial project unfold two and a half centuries. california it, two and a half centuries. excuse yeah. me uh, California is much different, but what we do see is by the within fifteen twenty years at all the missions we do see um a native an emergence of uh, of a native elite that speaks Spanish. some of these people write spanish um, they they begin to understand how to use the Spanish colonial system, its laws, um, its rivalries between missionaries and soldiers to gain some kind of foothold in the emerging society. And many of these native peoples – and they're exceptional. I don't want to suggest that this is a, a happy story or a uniform story. But we can see sort of a nucleus of a new population emerging, of native peoples um, who practice Spanish trades, who are vaqueros, who are masons, um, who have the skills necessary to survive in the colonial world. But as you suggest, by the 1820s and 30s, 40s and afterwards, you have this um, Anglo population that moves in, ultimately, with the conquest of California in the late 1840s that undoes all of that, and that the Sort of The the nascent native class that's going to potentially have more autonomy and more independence within a colonial system is wiped out um, because the Americans who come in have no interest in coexisting with Indian peoples. It's worth remembering all along that the Spanish system was rooted upon the conversion of native peoples, the incorporation of native peoples into a new society, whereas citizens from the U.S. or colonists from the U.S. have no interest in that. They see Indians as um, foreign, as dangerous, and as a threat to their own system and their economic survival.
0: I think that's a very important point, and I think we could talk about that at, at length, but I'd uh, hate to uh, to run out of time and not ask you about the canonization of Junipero. So uh, 2015, Pope Francis, our first uh, Latin American pope from, uh, from from the New World who has uh, it, it expressed uh, sympathy and solidarity with native peoples, certainly in his uh, second encyclical letter, uh, describing special care for indigenous communities and cultural traditions, then comes to the United States on his first visit and canonizes Junipero, uh, making, making him a saint. And so how should we understand this for for a man who at once had such zeal for the for the uh, spreading of the gospel but at the same time was um what you describe a um and 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 an, oh i forgot the quotation but you know the the agent of of empire and uh how does how does uh, a a figure like pope francis um believe believe his believe who no place to be
1: well i i think um it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question, and there are a couple of different ways to answer it. The first one is that it's worth remembering that Junipero Serra, from his early years as a novitiate studying for the Franciscan priesthood in Majorca, read uh, dozens if not scores of narratives of Franciscans who had left Majorca and elsewhere, gone to the New World, and lived lives that were ultimately crowned in canonization. So Sarah directly models his own religious practice, his own work with Native peoples upon men who were canonized in his own life. So from a distance, Sarah essentially meets the bar. He has all the characteristics of a saint. He colonizes a new region. He punishes his own body. He seems to be a leader among men. And in his own life, people said they walked among a saint when they were with Junipero Sarah. So there is sort of a record of saintliness in Sarah's own life that the Pope and others drew upon when they declared him to be a saint. But canonization is a deeply political act because there are lots of other men like Pro Sarah who will never be canonized despite their own quote unquote saintly qualities. So I think what's key here in understanding why Sarah was canonized in 2015 he represented, in the eyes of leading Catholic priests in California, the Southwest, and the United States. Sarah symbolized for them essentially an ideal immigrant, a man who had come north from Mexico, preaching Catholicism and hoping to found stately communities in California. He was a man who also called up the notion that Spain and Catholicism were among the first settlers of the New World. After all, they did come long before the Puritans. So for the Archbishop of Los Angeles, Junipero Serra becomes a symbol of essentially the deep roots of Catholicism in the New World as a way to give most U.S. citizens a lesson in history. To suggest that the United States actually was not just a Protestant nation, but its earliest roots were Catholic among men like Nipro Sarah who came north to establish communities. So that makes Sarah very, very attractive um, for many religious leaders in California, the Southwest, and the U.S. But there's another key factor here. Um, and it 's very in some ways hard to understand, but I think that the religious hierarchy, the Catholic hierarchy in California and elsewhere looked with horror upon Donald Trump and others who began to push an anti immigrant platform in two thousand and fourteen and fifteen, and people among them the Archbishop of Los Angeles tried to argue that actually Trump and his men were all wrong, and that Junipero Serra was a model immigrant. This was a a man who had come from Mexico who was not a rapist, wasn't a thief, wasn't a murderer, was actually um, a good man who would ultimately be canonized. So I think the political moment of 2015 in which there was this rising wave of anti-immigrant sentiment in California, in ways that we couldn't have anticipated long before um, helped Junipero Serra achieve canonization
0: do you see any uh, uh sort of universalistic impulses in the Catholic Church that say it doesn't matter that these are Spaniards and these are uh, native Californian peoples, but rather these are humans and these are humans, and coming to coming to California from Mexico is like coming to pagan Germany or England or Poland or wherever else and yes there is plague and death and violence but this is how we consolidate one universal church or is that a fantasy to project onto onto people of the past
1: well i i do think that at some level um obviously Cyprian Sarah and practicing catholics um, and leading Catholics, whether they're the pope or a cardinal or whoever, uh, believe that Catholicism is a universal religion. It's the only true religion. and doesn't matter if it's practiced in Mexico or Germany or Spain or France or wherever, that it is a universal truth. But but Sarah wasn't canonized because of that. He was put forward as a symbol of a different kind of immigrant to California. I mean, he, of course, was not an immigrant to California. I mean, he came from Spain, from Mallorca, and he, he didn't see himself as Mexican at all, saw himself as Majorcan. But I think we can't lose track of the fact that the goal here was to re-educate Americans about the religious origins of the United States and to suggest that actually we aren't a Protestant nation, but we're a nation with deep roots in Catholicism. And I think that was the ultimate message that the Catholic hierarchy wanted to push when they argued that Junipero Serra was worthy of canonization when the pope finally canonized him in 2015.
0: So then from that point let's let me ask you the same question in in a secular light because as you observe and as you imply with the title of your book as a founding father Junipero Serra is also California's one of California's two statues in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C., where the Pope famously visited him also, and in fact, is the only Hispanic American of those 100. And there he stands among George Washington and Sam Adams and Ethan Allen and other sorts of founding fathers, as you point out. Uh, is that why he is our founding father? Because he you know, with all his flaws and um, anachronistic criticisms that we may give him, built what we have today. And should he be there? Well, and should he be there in the 21st century?
1: Well, I think the, the first to answer the first part of your question, he is every bit as important to the establishment of California as any of those other founding fathers are to the regions they settled or the nation state that they formed collectively in the mid 1770s. I think what I was trying to suggest in the title to the book was that California has its own unique history. And while of course California is part of the United States of America, its own colonial roots are not in England or Great Britain or the East Coast, but they're they're really anchored in a different kind of individual. A Franciscan missionary who came to California with very different beliefs. Not talking about democracy, but talking about sort of um monarchical absolutism and a sort of religious um, belief that was considered to be universal across um, the globe. So he is California's founding father in the sense that he is the first person to envision a common language across California, um, a series of communities knit together through commerce and transportation systems. I mean, he does really articulate for the first time a collective identity that he sees, that he hopes one day will stretch from San Diego to San Francisco. So he he's extremely important. The second question is very difficult and timely, of course. Should he be in the Capitol as a representative of California? This was discussed in some detail um, around the period of his canonization, and there were attempts by Various politicians in California to have him removed. Um, the governor Jerry Brown put an end to that and said, Calif- said that Sarah would be in the Capitol uh, until the end of time. So I don't think that removing him is actually on the horizon. But he is a figure who, sort of post Charlottesville, uh, has is seen as perhaps not appropriately commemorated in public places across the state and many of his. Many statues of him have been vandalized and some of even been removed. I think that he is not, in a sense, the best representative of the best of California today. I mean, California is uh, an international place. Um, it's outward looking. It's inclusive. It's diverse. It's all of those things and Sarah himself didn't really advocate for them. He didn't believe in diversity. Um, He believed there was one religion. Uh, He believed in racial hierarchies. He was an extremely dogmatic and inflexible person, and his own identity is one that's not easily reconciled with California today. So, uh, and of course, to many people, his most important legacy, was the oppression or destruction of Native cultures in California, and if for no other reason, he probably doesn't belong in a public place. I mean, it's one thing that the Catholic Church wants to have statues of Sarah in courtyards or in on, the, on church grounds. That's the decision the church makes. Whether the public should support such public commemoration, I think, is an entirely different question.
0: Thank you so much. I know you have to go now, uh, and thank you very much for taking taking the time this morning to talk with us about this excellent book and for all of your scholarship.
1: Sure. It was good to talk with you. Um, okay. I could add one thing. Yes, please. Well, I, th- I think what's really important about looking at Junipero Serra is that, you know, we collectively, as U.S. citizens, as student of Amer- students of American history, I think what we often think of when we think about the colonial past of our country are 13 English colonies that struck as one in 1776 and formed the U.S., a nation state founded upon a certain set of principles that evolved on the East Coast at a particular moment in our time, in our nation's history. But I think we have to realize that our nation's early American history, its colonial history, is much broader than that. It encompasses not just English colonization, but the French and the Spanish across the continent. And it's it's a much more complicated history. And I think that by looking at people like Nipro Sarah, we're forced to think about different colonial outcomes, um, different ways in which Europeans settled in the Americas, and of course, different native groups that resisted that colonization. So I think what's really at stake here in looking at Sarah's life is a uh, much more complicated understanding of our nation's origins, and of course, what flows from that is more complicated understanding about the country we live in today.
0: I think that is an excellent, excellent last point. I often like to ask my students, "Can you think of what is the first state capital to be founded?" And students like to guess Boston, say, or, or, or Richmond, but in fact, it's Santa Fe in 1609. Uh, and just goes that uh, this country is older and broader than than we often think of it.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for letting me squeeze it in. I appreciate it.
0: It's my great pleasure. Thank you again.